I'm Naira Antoun, Director of the Transnational Trends and Citizenship Project. You're listening to Order from Ashes, the podcast from Century International. Today, I'm speaking with Jean Asir and Nicole Carty about learning and protest movements. This podcast is part of the Transnational Trends and Citizenship Project, where we brought together topic experts, activists, and scholars from the Middle East, Europe, and North America to see what we could learn when we break down area-based silos. Today's conversation comes out of the protest and movement working group. Uh, Jean Asir is an activist and co-founder of Megaphone, an independent media platform in Lebanon. And Nicole Carty is a core team member at Momentum, a social movement incubator and training institute. Thank you both for joining today. Thank you. Thank you. Um, perhaps I can... Um, begin by asking, uh, you're both, you know, movement people, um, and perhaps I can bin, begin by asking you about um, whether or not um, in your years of involvement, you have sort of looked to other um, protest movements for uh, ideas or inspiration or um, or not. I'll start with you, Jean, and then we'll move over to you, Nicole. Sure. I mean, uh, basically, the movement I've been part of, which is first the student movement and then the much broader anti-establishment movement that uh, started in 2011 was obviously directly inspired by uh, the Arab uprisings. So uh, both uh, in the way people have mobilized, but also uh, the fact that uh, there was a a widespread wave of of protests across uh, the Arab region. And uh, I mean, the most obvious lesson learned uh, was related to the import of, of grassroots organizing, basically, to be able to actually have leverage on uh, where things would be going and not just have a momentary uh, influence and impact on the ground during the protest, but also being able to translate it politically. And this is also one of the main uh, things that have pushed us to invest so hard in building that uh, student grassroots, uh, uh, grassroots political infrastructure. And then obviously everything that has been happening later, uh, be it uh, in Chile uh, with uh, the student movement or also other places, Uh, was extremely inspirational in terms of uh, the tactics, uh, the discourse, and also uh, the political imagination uh, that would allow us to uh, reconsider uh, our tools and uh, the ways we would uh, basically use it. Yeah, so let's take, um, yeah, because you said said both, that's the inspiration uh, side and this level of uh, tactics. So yeah, I mean, it's easy to see, I guess, how inspiration happens and is actually quite important uh, in many ways to maintain momentum uh, globally. But um, in terms of tactics, so let's say Chile, what what did you see when you looked at what was happening in, in Chile that was relevant to, to you? I mean, the main common denominator is related to obviously the fact that the students had an extremely uh, uh, powerful role in the whole uprising and that they were actually able to sustain themselves as a political actor and were not just uh, here to fuel, uh, I mean, the protests on the ground and then uh, lost their leverage with time. Obviously, I'm not an expert on that, so I'm not <laughs> going to go into further details. But basically, the the, the ability of uh, of the student movement to weigh uh, uh, so powerfully in the national political game was very inspirational. Also, in a country that has an extremely complex past, which is something that we share uh, as well in Lebanon, uh, and also in a country which like many others, is facing a generational uh, clash to some extent uh, and a clash in terms of values and political aspiration and so on. So from that extent, it was inspiration. Going into the details of the way they're organized, 
I frankly wouldn't be able mm-hmm. to go uh, that in-depth, but looking this from afar was, uh, yeah. Yeah, because indeed, you know, when, with um, 2011 and Occupy, I don't remember the details, but I remember there were these moments, uh, was it, there were a couple of statements, there was pizza ordered from Tahrir to one of the occupations, I don't remember which one. Um But yeah, but there's also the global south to global south connections. And I, I guess, you know, the question is also if there's learning in, in both directions. So, Nicole, I wonder if you have something to add. I know you've been in, you were involved in Occupy and you've been involved in movement for black lives and, and other movements. But yeah. Yeah, bring you in. absolutely. I would say that, as you just stated, Occupy was really directly inspired by the Arab Spring. And so that is certainly my first experience of being influenced by movements outside of the United States. Um, after Occupy, and there was a lot of that um, international relationship. We did get pizza from Tahrir. We actually also got activists from Tahrir as well. And so there was a lot of cross-pollination in that moment, not just from Tahrir, but also um, with Spain and Podemos and all of the square movement that was happening there, which happened right after Occupy. There were a lot of activists who were going between those three different occupations and other occupations that were happening globally and um, actually brought back from Podemos like what it would look like to shift into building political power that's got on to influence um, organizations like Justice Dems here in the United States that have kind of taken back, integrated those lessons. What I'd also say is, you know, after Occupy, Occupy was very messy. It had a lot of the same successes and problems as happened in Tahrir Square. And um, afterwards, we were really looking to figure out what worked and what didn't work and why. And when we were in that moment, we looked over social movements that had taken place across the globe, but also within the US to look for best practices and see what did we get right and what did we get wrong. And as you were looking across for successful models, one international example that really inspired us Um, was were the color revolutions that happened in Serbia and um, in Eastern Europe and the kind of structure that they had not to just kind of escalate and design a forward-facing campaign strategy, but building infrastructure to engage and um, train up students all across the country to be able to move as one, to know what the strategy of the movement was, um, and to be able to actually overthrow Milosevic. And so that's an example that we've taken the learnings from, um, and also some very direct uh, like coaching and support from Ivan Marovic to like reintegrate into our understanding of how to build successful social movements. And that's helped actually inspire the infrastructure for movements like Sunrise and others that momentum is incubated. And so um, we are continuously learning from international models and kind of updating them and trying to uh, launch movements that are inspired by them. So let's say with the color revolutions, in a way, are you saying that on the one hand, there's kind of like the study, so just observing and learning what happened. And then there's also the engagement with people who were themselves involved whether in training or, or otherwise. Yeah, absolutely. And so, I mean, even during Occupy, we had some folks who were really integral in designing the color revolution, um, Otpor in Serbia coming and trying to give us their learnings, which we failed to integrate <laughs> at that time, but have since made progress in integrating into 
subsequent movements. But what's been so interesting about talking to people um, who have been experienced in other movements is, you know, that you, it's different than just looking at the tactics of what they did. When you talk to people directly, you get to understand sort of the philosophy behind their actions and what it felt like to not really know what was going to happen and what it felt like to have to make a decision on the fly, which as much as we can say this stuff is a science, it's also very much an art. And that helps you get into the mindset of what what creatively you need to be prepared to do in order to have successful movements. And because we got that kind of foundation, we were able to learn from what they did, but also update the model because, you know, ever since we all got smartphones, we're living in a world where the internet is in our pocket. And so what was available to us, the philosophies behind their actions that like would get printouts in the, you know, on like webs, like, you know, old web serves, web serves, is that a word? No, listservs. And also um, newspaper clippings, you know, we could update that into like, what does it mean to put this on Twitter? What does it mean to integrate this into Facebook? How do we use our technology and where people are getting their information right now in order to update um, our tactics to meet people where they are in you know, the 21st century? I mean, the last part is uh, <laughs> regarding the use of social media and actually uh, reaching out to people where they are is also one of the main drivers of, uh, of Megaphone, in a sense, which is uh, not an activism experience per se, but it's an experience of independent media that, w- that was born on social media that was also able to subvert those media platforms, which were not necessarily thought of as places for uh, political and transgressive ideas, especially Instagram, actually, in Lebanon. And that we're actually, yeah, we actually we were able to seize the opportunity of the absence of the traditional forces on such platforms, to uh, build something and uh, also gain leverage and be able to impose a discourse that otherwise wouldn't have uh, been mainstream. Uh, yeah. Yeah, I mean, Megaphone was um, you know, a very clear intervention into that space. So unlike other media organizations that might, I don't know, write articles and then from them do posts on social media, your main output was those posts, right? Absolutely. Especially I mean, at the, the, start. the project was born on social media and uh, it was clear that the intent was to reach people where they are and to also somehow play the game uh, of social media in a sense that the content should be adapted uh, to be consumed on this platform within the rules of the game without compromising on obviously the editorial but also the quality of the content. Uh, and this is clearly coming from an activism mindset. It's an impact-driven mindset. So other independent journalists would have went maybe for a much more classical approach, which is to have a website and then try to promote it using social media. We were not really much, very much interested in that. We were interested in getting the information across and putting it directly where people are and would best engage with it. Right. And, um, you know, I think both of you mentioned that you're or maybe you didn't, but that you primarily started getting involved in politics around 2000, uh, or activism, active politics, in 2011, which is around a time, you know, when there were all these claims made about social media, right, that was much more um, automatic, like social media was necessarily uh, liberatory and uh, helpful for movements, and and we know all those claims that were made, and I think the world has largely moved on from from those from those claims. Um, Nicole, how has like um, 
movement for Black Lives um, dealt, you know, because the hashtag was this key moment and, and how, what sort of strategies are there for dealing with uh, both social media and, and other media? Yeah, I think that in this um, in this environment, you know, moving for Black, the hashtag started after the acquittal of George Zimmerman in 2013. And um, it was just a hashtag initially. And so I think that it was, and it was a really important frame, right? I think social media hashtags can be critical interventions in how we're thinking and how we're like, the, the, the bucket of information we're holding together as we're like looking at the world around us. And that hashtag was a really critical intervention, but it wasn't until there was organizing behind it the next year to actually bring that hashtag to life um, by organizing people to kind of travel to Ferguson where there were uprisings happening, um, that that hashtag became something more. And so what, what ignited in the hashtag, you know, most of that original organizing was also ha- drew people who were attracted to that framing from across the United States um, and organized them, I think, first online and then organized people to be together online. And I think what we're seeing in that and part of what is so empowering about this moment and how um, social media can be used is not just reaching people online, but using that to create relationships offline. And still to this day, I would advocate that that is the most powerful thing that social media can do. And that like healthy online communities actually manifest offline. And that there's still an incredible amount of power in that, or even relationally building online as well. Um, Those are key organizing tactics that continue to help us build to the numbers that we need to create the transformation that we're after. And they are being employed not just on the our side, you know, the left maybe, but also on the right. And when you look at the tactics, you know, we can we now know the, you know, social media is not just for good. Um, it's also like a huge source of disinformation. But if you look at even QAnon, for example, that is a movement that is organizing on social media and actually trying to build relationships online that funnel people to post disinformation and post, you know, post in support of authoritarianism. And so it actually is still useful for movements. It's just the other side is using it more effectively for their movements than we are. And so the task for us is to figure out what we need to do to um, counterbalance that and use it to harness mm. our messages as well as they have been able. Yeah, I think I actually remember um, an interview maybe that you did, Nicole. Um, uh, I think it must have been around a time of uh, protests with regard to Movement for Black Lives. And one of the things you were speaking about was this um, moving away from this conventional idea of um how people get involved in movements. So there's this ladder of engagement. So you begin with the most basic type of activity and you sort of, that takes you to the next step and it's this unidirectional thing. And I I think if I remember correctly, you were kind of saying that social media actually opens that up much more, that people can enter in different ways. Yeah, absolutely. Um, And this is why we, when I organize, we make big asks of people because 
There will be people who never want to do more than sign an email, perhaps. But when a moment is happening, think about the uprisings and protests that happened in the U.S. and actually around the world in 2020. People didn't want to just sign a petition. They wanted to organize a protest. They wanted to get out in the streets. They were prepared to do the things at the top of the ladder. Um, they weren't interested in doing things about moving up a ladder. They wanted to actually jump in feet first. And because of the rapidity with which those protests were organized, they were able to engage in that way. And higher engagement creates a broader impact in the public. And what we saw during that period was, you know, support for for Black lives, um, urgency around action to fix racial injustice skyrocket to levels that hadn't been seen in this country since at least the 60s, um, really rapidly because people were able to jump in um, at a really high level. Now, part of what has happened since that is that we didn't have infrastructure to keep that engagement at that level. You also can't keep that engagement at that level permanently, but we didn't have enough infrastructure to even capture it besides capturing money or, you know, clicks and likes and things like that. And so the streets emptied and that infrastructure wasn't able to be, um, we weren't able to replicate that kind of activity. And now we're really in this moment of backslide and backlash because the right has a lot of power and actually um, more long lasting institutions that help organize their people. Mm. Yeah, so maybe before we turn to infrastructure more, I wanted to come back to you, Jean, and s sort of ask you about this question of, yeah, the relationship between offline and online and, and how that works for you guys in, in Lebanon. I mean, I think there are a lot of similarities with what Nicole mentioned. I think it's extremely useful to use social media in times of uh, when there's an opportunity to trigger a big momentum. So really seize the opportunity and be able to create something big uh, overnight and then to sustain it to some extent and keep people in the loop and updated and being part of a movement. But then the limitations are obvious if the, if the infrastructure is not there because uh, this can last for so long. And then after that, uh, you need the framework of uh, organized political action to be able to sustain the movement beyond the momentum. And uh, this is where I think, uh, I mean, the fact that there were, there was a lack of those uh, really structured movement in 2019 in Lebanon uh, was also one of the main reasons why the counter-revolution was sort of quite fast to be able to impose uh, a reality and also to make us lose the street. And this is where social media sort of became also a sort of a backup plan to the street. So to, to clear your conscience, you can be angry online, but you will not necessarily translate that into any form of uh, physical action in the street. Yeah. So a kind of, sorry, like a kind of, um, what's it called? Energy release valve. Today, this is the role it's playing mostly. Yeah. Mm. Okay, we'll be right back. I'm Thanasi Kambanis, director of Century International. We're the heirs to more than 100 years of international policy research at the Century Foundation. Today, we focus on the human consequences of policy crises in the Middle East and North Africa, and we try to address our findings to a wide international audience. We're especially concerned with decision makers, whether in MENA region capitals or in the West and Washington, whose decisions can greatly change the trajectory of policies in the Middle East. 
please visit us at tcf.org to read our reports and listen to our podcasts. Welcome back to Order from Ashes, the Century International podcast. I'm Naira Antoun and I'm speaking with Jean Asir and Nicole Carty about transnational trends in citizenship. Um, welcome back. Yeah, both of you sort of alluded to a, a quite similar uh, dilemma or realization, I guess, that you both went through in the um, in Lebanon and, and the U.S. respectively of having, yeah, this um, moment of high mobilization, um, relatively um, involvement of different people, and it kind of fizzling out without um, without infrastructure. Um, yeah, Jean, maybe you can say some more about that. Yeah, I mean, basically. Uh... I mean, our bet from day one was that without a really uh, solid uh, grassroots political infrastructure that is not just structured, but that also has the ability to create a political culture and to also transmit the skills between one generation and the other, it would be extremely hard just to rely on uh, ephemeral, punctual uh, protest movement. Because, I mean, so many lessons learned prove that it's the most structured, actually, that can seize the opportunity whenever a protest movement happens to translate it into uh, actual political gains and hopefully political change. So uh, unfortunately, uh, since 2015, which was one of the major protest movements before the uprising of 2019, uh, the option that most activists uh, went for wasn't that of creating something robust and structured. It was really betting on extending and elongating that momentum uh, using uh, elections, municipal, and then uh, maybe student or syndical elections as ways to reignite that momentum. Uh, while we took part in those uh, elections, obviously, and we're excited about it, but we felt that there was an indispens- indispensable homework to be done. Uh, and without that, I mean, uh, we would remain extremely vulnerable and those movements will remain ephemeral. And I think this is one of the main lessons learned in 2019. The fact that when the big opportunity came, when people met us halfway, when uh, hundreds of thousands were in the street, there wasn't actual structures to pick that up and bargain and push and actually uh, obtain some some actual political gains and, and change. Yeah. yeah, so without that groundwork, neither can you negotiate well, it's easy to be co-opted, um, mm-hmm. all, all those, all those things. Yeah, Nic- yeah, Nicole, I'll turn to you. This just speaks to the same phenomenon. Um, it happens all the time. And I was first politically engaged in 20, I mean, in movements. We didn't really have movements in this way um, in my lifetime until 2011. Now we're in movement times. Um, I, you know, the first time you see it, you feel like the world is ending because all of the energy you thought you were going to win, you thought you were so close. And then everyone leaves and the streets empty out. And it it really is a moment of heartbreak. And the thing that I've learned that I definitely know in the subsequent 11 years is that that keeps happening, right? And so these cycles of huge escalation and opportunities occur and it doesn't last forever. And if you are, if it's your first rodeo, you think it lasts forever. You think you're on the precipice, of, you know, ending capitalism or ending systemic racism. Um, and you're on top of the world. And often you're a little bit like egotistical about that because you're like, we figured it out. Nobody else figured it out. This moment's going to change everything. And then two months later, the street's empty and you're scratching your head 
And suddenly in this like very vulnerable position and all this infighting begins to happen in your movement um, because it doesn't last. And so after you've seen that happen three, four, five times, like I have, you know that this moment, these moments are going to be fleeting. And so the question becomes, how do you prepare for them so that when they do occur, you actually are ready to um, put in place an infrastructure that can capture a portion of that energy um, so you can create you create that kind of escalation in the future. And a few of the movements of momentum that's incubated, Sunrise Movement, if not now, Kusesha, they have this orientation that knows these moments will happen and actually is oriented towards having infrastructure to pull in the energy from those moments in order to escalate again. And this role that structure plays in creating your ability to re-escalate and to reignite the national conversation is critical because if you have a base, you not only can reignite and respond more when these moments happen again, you can create them yourself. And so when we saw the escalation that the Sunrise Movement did in 2018 in Congress or yeah, in the Capitol building, um, they flooded it with a bunch of young people demanding climate action. And there was very little climate conversation before that happened. They were able to generate their own momentum because they had built up and organized and like created that base to then create the moments to change the conversation. And the lesson from that is that with infrastructure, movements don't only have to respond to these moments and act in reaction. They can actually create them as well. And we need to be able to be creating these moments if we're going to be building the clarity and if we're going to be sharing our narrative and if we're going to be building the power we need, especially in this country, to get the reforms that are necessary. Because in the United States, we've never had major reforms of our democracy of our laws without very extensive movement institutions and infrastructure making it a national priority so that we think that any of this is going to happen without that is um, ahistorical. And so we need organization not just to create these moments to be able to drive the conversation. We need them to be able to win and to be able to like create the political will for um, action on the things that we care about. Mm. Yeah, it's interesting. You've both mentioned also um, the question of youth a little bit. So, I mean, Jean, you referenced, well, not youth, but the question of generation when you were talking about uh, Chile and um, Lebanon. And I'm just thinking about this thing that, um, yeah, it's almost crazy that it's all, almost always repeated, this kind of crazy moment of excitement and, and the utter heartbreak. And I just mean crazy because there's just so much uh, heartbreak as well. Um and yeah, and often at these moments, there seems to be, um, or at least in the last 10 years, I'm not sure if it, um, more than that, but um, this question of we're, we're doing right what the previous generations didn't. Um, and sometimes I wonder if that whole generation discourse slightly contributes to the um, on not learning, but but I'm a little personally ambivalent about that because I think there are also real generational questions. So I, I wonder what you guys think. I mean, we, we're not very um, attached to that framework. That's at least not the only framework through which we see uh, things because we're also, uh, we value quite a lot the idea of 
transmission of skills. And uh, we actually seek to be able to sit and talk with uh, comrades uh, who've been involved in the 90s, but also during the Civil War in the 70s to, to actually understand what went wrong. So this is not really our... Uh, our main uh, issue, the, the, the issue of generation we're talking about is more related to the value system and aspirations and political ceiling that we as uh, young Lebanese, but also young Arab, young Lebanese born after the civil war with everything that we've inherited in terms of uh, baggage and history and so on, and that we are also rebelling against. So this is where I think the generation component uh, enters the picture. And there's another thing which, I mean, I'm self-critical of it, is that for example, when I want to give advice to the current student activist, I mean, there's a 10-year difference between someone who's now in university and, and, and me. So I know that I will not be able to grasp uh, some opportunities, some tactical uh, opportunities, actually, uh, because of that gap. And uh, for me, it's also very important to keep that sort of experience in check and, and sort of be able to tame it sometimes, because no matter uh, how... Uh, we try, every generation will actually have to do its own experience, even if there is transmission of skills, and even if we build institutional memory through strong structures. It's indispensable for the newer generation to actually do mistakes, innovate, and also uh, present something new. Like, uh, yeah. Yeah. Nicole, did you have something to, to add? Yeah. I mean, I think that's all just completely correct. And I think there is a there's two pieces, right? There's like a, um, there is innovation. There are things that are new. There are things that the new, the youth will always have the energy. They'll always be the drivers of movements pretty much forever. Um, and there is also, you know, there's a thing that happens with youth where, at least in the US, um, they are definitely inspired by some historical examples, but definitely not by others. And I think there's a, posturing about like there's kind of a uh there's a there's a backlash that's happening that I always see young activists where they're like really wanting to problematize um the examples in the U.S. history that are like pretty shared and lauded like the civil rights movement and like will point towards the more radical flanks of black power movement this is just in the racial justice struggle but What's so interesting about that is that there's a narrative in which youth can understand that to be really like brand new and like really like a unique thing that they're doing. And also, if you have a broader historical view, you can see really clearly how that thinking is directly in the lineage of protest movements from the 1970s and onward, the radicalization that happened after um, LBJ was president and the kind of like hostility and skepticism about change in the state that has actually been completely uninterrupted since that time. And so I always think it's really funny. Um, the like kind of brand newness, the uniqueness, which like especially really young people can see their organizing and activism and the ways that they cannot see how their indirect lineage of, you know, certain schools of organizing and activism that um, are decades old, like the same conversations that are happening in movements now happen in movements in the 1960s, like pretty much verbatim. None of these conversations are new. They're all really tired out. They're all really played out. 
um, the journeys of people like Malcolm X from, you know, like dissident to like, you know, radical leader to somebody who then just wanted to like see equality in the United States. Like these stories happened in the 1960s. They happened in the 1860s, right? Frederick Douglass went on the exact same journey. And so um, there is a level of non-newness to all of this stuff. And there's a lot to learn from really looking at history and really examining what worked and what didn't work because um, it's not totally brand new. And I, I also just, I'm, you know, I'm a millennial. Um, I was very young when I got involved in Occupy. I had the, a unique position of having a lot of movement wisdom at a very young age. And so now I'm 33 and, and looking at Gen Z and like what is a marvel to me is they, they're oblivious to the degree that they grew up in the world that we created for them. It's like the reason why they have all this language and all this analysis is because they grew up seeing all these social movements. And um, that's like what was a new invention in my, you know, like, I guess youth or whatever, in my twenties. And um, there's just like a, there's like a, there's an ahistoricization that is very common in America, but is definitely playing out again now. And I, I, I feel like if we were to look back and actually ground ourselves in where, in like recognizing the complete ununiqueness of our situation, we could learn a lot about what has worked and what hasn't worked. And that's what Momentum really tries to do is to try to like support people to make new mistakes rather than making the same old mistakes. Yeah, I remember being involved in a conversation. I don't remember what year exactly, maybe 2014 or so, um, sort of Arab activists, we were talking about Syria and I had this um, kind of like, yeah, flashback from a moment I've never lived. It kind of just reminded me, the question was about gender and the main struggle. And I just thought, is this not like the debates they were having in the anti-colonial movements in the, in the fifties and sixties. And there was part of me that just thought, I wonder if even the contours of the debate are that different. You know, it was really they probably aren't. Yeah, it was quite, it was quite <laughs> it's, striking. It's kind of uh, miraculous how exact the exact same debates are. It's the exact same pitfalls, the exact same questions, the exact same tensions. Um, it's hilarious, actually, how unoriginal we are. <laughs> All right. So on that um, unoriginal note, um, maybe we'll end it there. But Jean, do you have anything to add to your last chance? No, no, I pretty much agree. But I think that uh, there's this paradox, I mean, in the sense that we know that uh, the lack of transmission of skills from one generation to another and the disconnection between all the political experiences uh, will create the fact that it's the same mistake and no new mistake. But at the same time, a rigid institutional structure will probably tame political imagination and not be able mm -hmm. to uh, drive new ideas. So uh, I'm a bit uh, between the two yeah. in the sense like I, I like the spontaneity of just like putting the old political uh, structure, like the big institution aside and trying something new, uh, while having in mind maybe the whole background of past experiences and previous experiences. Yes, no, I mean, I would even, I want, I think that perhaps the, the tension that occurs within movements around this very question is itself productive. Mm -hmm. It's perhaps not a waste of energy of people just arguing, but as you say, Jean probably keeps the... Um, 
enables us not to fall on either side of that of the, of those dangers that, mm-hmm. that you were that you were speaking about. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I'll just add in like it's a practice holding that tension, right? Like it's not either of those poles are not going to be successful, but every movement has to figure out how are we going to hold and balance this so that we can get the creativity know that we're in a modern context, update our tactics and like move forward, um, being grounded in what's happened before. There is no perfect answer. There are pitfalls to both sides. And I think it's something that every good movement has to be in practice around. Mm. How yeah, it's you a, balance a, a delicate negotiation. Issues. So I guess the point is there is actually no ABC. Um, indeed. Thank you both for for joining today. Uh, You've been listening to Order from Ashes, the Century International podcast. I'm Naira Antoun, and I've been speaking with Jean Asir and Nicole Carty as part of our Transnational Trends and Citizenship Project, which brings together experts from across regions. The Order from Ashes podcast has been brought to you by Century International. Our work builds on more than 100 years of commitment to international peace, security, and governance at the Century Foundation. We are independent, critical, and progressive. For more information about Century International's work, please visit tcf.org or follow us on Twitter and Facebook. We depend on audience feedback to reach new listeners. If you like what you hear, please leave a review wherever you get your podcasts.